Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Tracy, I have fantastic news. What is it? <laughs> this episode is not creepy. It's so not good. unsettling. I was it's starting to worry depressing. about you. Well, I love all that stuff. I mean, I legit have a very sort of morbid and morose taste in many things, even though I'm pretty giggly in day-to-day life. But this one has none of that. It's just kind of a cool moment in the development of human technologies. Hooray. Yeah, your your episodes were, were disproportionately jerks there for a while. Yeah, these people, not jerks to the best of my knowledge, which is fantastic. So uh, back in October of 2013, we had an episode about female balloonist Sophie Blanchard and the balloonomania that was gripping Europe at the time. Uh, but today we're going to talk about the roots of that balloonomania. It's pretty close because this was a, a very explosive moment in terms of interest and excitement about air flight. Uh, and we're going to talk about the inventive minds of two brothers that really shaped ballooning. And we actually did talk about them briefly in the Blanchard episode, but their work sort of deserves its own episode. Uh, and the inspiration for this episode actually came from working on a How Stuff Works article a while back about drones that I was editing. Um, and our art department put together this really fantastic interactive graphic about the ways humans have taken to the skies in unmanned vehicles over the years. And one of the earliest points on that clickable timeline featured Joseph Michel and Jacques Etienne Montgolfier. And so I thought it might be fun to talk about them. Joseph Michel was the older of the brothers, born on August 26, 1740, in Annonay, France. He would go on to go by Joseph. Jacques Etienne, or Etienne Jacques, depending on which document you're looking at, uh, was generally just called Etienne, and he was born about four and a half years later, on January 6, 1745. So, for the timeline, if you are a fan of our prior uh, Sophie Blanchard episode, that was about three decades before she was born. Yeah, and the discrepancy in terms of talking about Etienne is that his name is listed different ways on different documents. So his birth certificate and death certificate are opposite. One says Jacques Etienne, one says Etienne Jacques. Uh, just a heads up there if you're like, why Why are they flippy? Uh, and in addition to these two brothers, their father, Pierre Montgolfier, and their mother, Anne Duray, had 14 other kids. Uh, <laughs> that's a lot of children. And fortunately, Pierre was a very successful businessman, so he was able to support that massive family. And the way he did so was uh, through a family business, because the Montgolfiers owned a number of paper factories in France, all of which were doing pretty darn well. Joseph attended private school in the Jesuit college, but school just really didn't quite agree with him. His mind was really busy and he had trouble focusing on one thing, uh, sort of like some other people in the room right now. He eventually left to start his own chemical business in Paris. Etienne went to school to be an architect, although he was also interested in science. And it wasn't long before both he and his brother uh, continued to run the family business as adults. Etienne was better, better at the business side of things. He had become the head of the family's paper factories at age 30 after Pierre retired. And their brother, Raymond, who had been in charge of the business, passed away. 
Joseph, on the other hand, was always interested in innovating and putting his chemistry knowledge to work to improve the processes in the mills that they owned. Yeah, every time you see any mention of uh, Joseph's business acumen, like at one point he was running his own chemical business, he was not good at that part of it. He tended to lose a lot of money because, as we said, little, little focus issues. Uh, but the income from the paper factories would give Joseph and Etienne the financial freedom to explore and experiment in the science of ballooning. And it's not entirely clear why or how the two began thinking about air flight. There are so many apocryphal stories about how this happened. One was that watching bits of burning paper lift into the air from a fire got them started. Uh, another was that it was simply watching smoke rise from a fire that gave them the inspiration to think about how air and smoke and lift worked. And another suggests that Joseph was watching his wife's chemise dry over a fire, and he noticed how the fabric billowed out as warm air was trapped underneath it. But we do not know if any of those are true or not. They all sound like ballooning versions of being hit with an apple. (laughs) Yeah, very much so, (laughs) depending on which biography you are looking at. Uh, And most modern ones kind of acknowledge, we don't know, but some of the older accounts and even accounts that the the gentlemen gave in their lives, they shift a lot. And you can tell it's kind of like, we don't know, so we're just going to plop something here that, that makes some sort of sense. So that's why we have a billion different stories about it. But the important thing is they did start thinking about it. In 1782, the brothers observed that when heated air was contained in a lightweight vessel made of paper or fabric, that vessel would rise. They actually thought they had discovered a new type of gas that was lighter than air, and they named that Montgolfier gas. Their theory was that Montgolfier gas was contained in the smoke from the fire and that it possessed a property that they called levity, Which brightens my day a little bit. It's very charming. Uh, of course, over time, it would, you know, prove that it was, it was just the heat that was, you know, making the regular air rise, not activating some sort of hidden gas that was present in the air. And we should also point out that while the Montgolfiers are often credited with inventing ballooning, and while we are talking about them specifically at length today, They were certainly not the only people experimenting with the idea of flight, and they were not even the first to be filling lightweight bags with air to make them float. Uh, Portuguese priest Bartolomeo Lorenzo de Guzmão, which I'm probably butchering, uh, was floating small balloons in the early 1700s, and he was working on designs for a much more sophisticated airship based on those balloon experiments when he died in 1724. It appears, however, that the Montgolfiers did not know about those ballooning experiments going on in Portugal earlier in the century. Filling balloons with hot air to lift them up was also employed in China way before Europeans ever got this idea. Rising lanterns of this nature were common in China as early as the third century. So this was a long time before... (laughs) Before Europeans were even thinking, hey, maybe if I filled a bag with this, it would rise. Yeah, yeah. whenever I see like those sort of and I I know because we both work in editing and we do copy that sometimes you just have to like cut down extraneous stuff to make a point. But whenever I see like a blurb or something that says the Montgolfiers first to ever, you know, achieve balloon flight, I'm like, that needs a whole lot of qualifier. (laughs) Really not. Yeah. 
Um, and prior to and during the time that Joseph and Etienne were at work on their ballooning efforts, there were also so many other of their contemporaries in Europe working on similar ideas. And we're mentioning all of this just to make clear that while these two gentlemen do get a lot of credit for inventing manned flight, it might be more accurate to say that they were two of many who were working towards that goal at the same time, and a bit of lucky timing happened to be on their side. In April of 1783, the Montgolfiers began testing their theories in earnest, creating various models of balloons from fabric and paper and then trying out their airworthiness. They also experimented with different flammable media to determine what would burn the best at the most controllable rate to heat the air so that it didn't just become an alarming conflagration of burning balloon. Yeah, there were some instances <laughs> that happened in their testing, but uh, on June 4th of 1783, the brother duo went to the Anane marketplace to present their work in heated air by way of demonstration. So they set up this silk balloon that was lined with paper. It was huge. It had a diameter of 33 feet. That's about 10 meters. And they arranged straw and carded wool beneath the balloon. Uh, they had determined that burned the best under the bags only opening. So then they burned that straw in the wool and it heated the air within their vessel. I bet this was stinky. Probably. It seems like especially the burning wool would be gross. So uh, once the interior air was heated, the bag rose up off the ground. Estimates place it at an altitude of about 3,000 feet, which is a little more than 900 meters at the highest that it reached. After staying aloft and drifting for about 10 minutes, the balloon then drifted back down to Earth, finally landing about a mile and a half or 2.4 kilometers from the marketplace where they started out this demonstration. And this was pretty exciting to everyone. Uh, and the success of their NNA display led them to Paris. L'Académie des Sciences wanted to hear all about the balloon experiments. So Etienne went to give a talk there about their work. And the pair were honored by the Academy for that work. Uh, and if you're wondering why only Etienne spoke with the Academy in Paris, it was because the pair were wanted in many places at once once they had done this demonstration. So Joseph was speaking at the Lyon Academy at the same time. We're going to talk briefly about how very not accidental the success of the Montgolfier brothers was. But first, we will pause for a brief moment from a sponsor. Sounds grand. So all of this attention and praise was not, as we mentioned a moment ago, a situation where two gents were just goofing about and accidentally found themselves the toast of the country. Uh, keep in mind, too, that these weren't like super young guys. They were in their 30s at this point. So they were strategic thinkers. They were very smart men. And they had selected this date for their Anna exhibition to coincide with a meeting of local leaders so that people with some influence could witness what they had been working on. Etienne and Joseph were hoping to get the attention of the crown and launch their careers as scientific elites financially supported by the king. And that plan to get the head of the country interested in their balloons actually worked. From the presentation in Paris, the brothers headed to Versailles to repeat this balloon display for King Louis XVI. But this time, they aimed for a bigger, more ambitious experiment. They wanted to send a more structured balloon up and this time have passengers. 
And to execute the project, the Montgolfiers needed help. So they called on the skills of wallpaper maker Jean-Baptiste Réveillon. And with Réveillon's help, they constructed a balloon that was slightly smaller than the previous one. It had a diameter of 30 feet, or about 9 meters. But this balloon, which was also made from taffeta, was varnished with alum to fireproof it. And it had a decorative painted finish. The selection of passengers was also a significant step in the process. There were some serious concerns about what flight in a balloon might do to a body. I'm assuming they were also worried about what would happen if it crashed. So while King Louis XVI proposed that prisoners be used for the test, the Montgolfiers decided to go with a different plan. And this is kind of one of those things that you'll often see cited uh, as a wacky thing, but the reasons for it are pretty cool. So those first riders in, Mon- in the Montgolfier balloon basket were not humans. They were a duck, a rooster, and a sheep. And the logic was that since the duck was a naturally flying animal, it was considered something of a control element. And the rooster was selected because it was a bird, but it was one which flew only short, short distances very close to the ground. So it was like the next level of risk up from the duck in terms of what its body might be able to handle. And then the sheep was believed to be similar enough to a human physiologically that its success or failure as a passenger would give a pretty clear indication of whether ballooning was safe for humankind. This might be the silliest criteria for an experiment we have ever talked about. I love it, though. There's a logic to it. It's kind of silly. But I always wonder what kept the duck from flying out, but that's never covered. <laughs> it's just, I mean, similarly to the, the one that we had about the volcano that, that uh, people fought by spraying water at it, this whole idea of the balloon animal test just sounds like child logic to me. <laughs> it does. <laughs> it's like the brainstorming effort of a kindergarten class. Uh, however... Uh, this occasion was anticipated with great excitement. About 130,000 people, including the king and Marie Antoinette, were on hand to witness this historic moment and its very odd cargo. <laughs> and those three barnyard aeronauts were successfully launched on September 19th of 1783, and they flew for eight minutes. So animal lovers in the crowd, you may have already guessed because I'm giggly about it, will be happy to know that the feathered and woolly trio made a perfectly safe landing. Uh, although they had drifted approximately two miles, that's about 3.2 kilometers, while they were making history in the air. I hope they weren't scared. <laughs> I'm sure they were probably a little confused and possibly scared. Like I said, I don't know why the duck wouldn't just be like, I'm out. Yeah, if I were a duck, I'd be like, I'm not having your shenanigans. A world of no to this balloon. (laughs) As the animal experiment had gone so well, the Montgolfier brothers were eager to step things up and try a balloon carrying actual humans. And after a couple of months of prep on November 21st, 1783, they made history by launching the first manned, untethered balloon flight. And the two men who got to experience that exhilarating flight were not the Montgolfier brothers. Uh, the brothers stayed on the ground and kind of set up the whole thing. Though the two people were high-profile balloon enthusiasts. So one of the men was Jean-Francois Pilatre Drosier, uh, who was a chemist and head of the Count and Countess de Provence's uh, Cabinet of Physics, Chemistry and Natural History, who was known for his very flamboyant approaches to communicating science concepts. He would be a really fun topic for the future, FYI, he might be. Uh, and Pilatre Drosier had actually been in the balloon before, so... 
about a month prior, on October 15th, the Mongolfiers had launched a tethered test flight with him as the human occupant, and that lasted just four minutes. The other gentleman was Francois Laurent, Marquis d'Arland, who was a soldier and a noble. His inclusion in the event is said to have been the result of efforts on the part of the king to ensure that someone from the nobility was part of this historic moment when human flight was achieved. And the balloon itself was a rather spectacular looking thing. If you do an internet search for it, you'll see many, many pictures. And there are even modern balloons that have been designed to replicate it because it's it's so iconic and ballooning. So it was blue with intricate gold designs on the exterior, including symbols that were associated with King Louis XVI. Remember, they were very into currying favor with the king. Uh, and the passenger area, this is kind of the part of it that I really love. The passenger area was not a basket like you'd see on a balloon today that sat underneath it, but rather a ring around the opening at the bottom of the balloon uh, where heat could be applied to the air within. So you have to picture it sort of like a flanged bottom, and then the flange forms this little ring that, that the the human occupants could be in. And there was also a, a red bunting around the passenger area. It was very festive. They flew for less than half an hour, about 25 minutes, and that took them about five and a half miles or 8.6 kilometers in the process. As they rose up into the air, they doffed their caps to the spectators below, and their balloon had started at its lift at Chateau de la Muette on the far western side of Paris, and it landed at La Butte Ocaille. The crowd, which included Benjamin Franklin, was completely wowed. Yeah, Ben Franklin wrote about them a bit in his his accounts of his time in France, so... Uh, they are on record in his writings. Uh, and ever looking to the next level of achievement, the next plan for the French brothers was to carry larger groups of people by air. And to that end, just two months after that first untethered flight and after a failed start that they had tried to make, uh, which was derailed by rain and a small fire, they did launch a balloon carrying Joseph and several passengers into the air in Lyon, France, on January 19, 1784. This balloon was massive. It was 130 feet, about 40 meters in diameter. Uh, and their landing on this one was not ideal because the air in the balloon cooled really rapidly and it caused a much speedier descent than they were planning. But everyone did make it back safely, although they had only been in the air for about 15 minutes. However, even with their increasing triumphs, the Montgolfiers and other ballooning enthusiasts uh, who were attempting their own projects at flight started running into the same problems over and over. And for one thing, they hadn't figured out how to steer the balloons. They would pretty much go up and then be at the mercy of the air. For another, the altitude that a balloon could reach and the distance that it could travel were limited by the air in the balloon, which, of course, was cooling off over time. And concerns about fire initially led people away from the idea of keeping some sort of onboard flame going to stay in the air. And so alternate gases were considered. Uh, this is part of why just 10 days after the Montgolfiers sent Pilatre de Rosier and Laurent aloft for the first time, another inventor, Jacques-Alexandre César Charles, launched the first manned hydrogen-filled balloon. Which is a terrible idea. <laughs> Well, it had its pluses and minuses. <laughs> well, for the folks who remember... But ultimately, yes. Yeah, for the folks who remember our Hindenburg episode, yeah. 
Charles had been working with hydrogen throughout the time that the Montgolfiers had been developing their balloons. He actually started doing this because he thought that was what they were doing. And although the brothers barely beat him to manned flight, his December 1st, 1783 launch flew 27 miles, which is 43.5 kilometers, and it lasted for two hours. This was quickly recognized as a superior way to get people into the air. Yeah, so at that point, everyone was like, hydrogen is where it's at. Uh, (laughs) On June 15th, however, of 1785, tragedy struck the ballooning world when Jean-Francois Pilatre de Rosier died in a ballooning accident. He was crossing the English Channel in a balloon, which was filled with a combination of hot air and hydrogen when it exploded. And so less than two years after he made history in untethered flight, the hobby for which he held so much enthusiasm claimed his life and also made him its first fatality. Next up, we will talk a little about how all this balloon business was affecting the fashion culture of France. But before we get into hats and hairdos, let's pause and talk about one of our fabulous sponsors. I have to confess up front, I feel a little bit of guilt about this sponsor because their product is fantastic and I have been too busy to make use of it lately. That is Squarespace.com. (laughs) Tracy and I have been traveling a lot. Work has been a little busy and stressful, so I haven't had time to keep up with my sewing blog. But the good thing is I know when I go back to it, it's going to be as easy and intuitive as it ever was. And I won't have a steep learning curve where I'm like, ah, I haven't done this in a while. I got to remember how. It's so simple. It's going to be awesome. Uh, (laughs) So Squarespace.com will enable you to create an amazing website in a simple, intuitive way. You can add and arrange your content and features with the click of a mouse. Also, if you purchase an entire year's subscription of Squarespace service, you will also get a custom domain for free for a year. Or if, like me, you had already purchased a domain, you can import that super easily. They make integration incredibly simple. There are beautiful templates to design a best-in-class online store with Squarespace's award-winning setups. They have customizable settings and more, and you don't have to have a single plug-in. Their commerce tools are super seamless, so if you are in it to make a little bit of money off of your website... They will help you set all of that up, and their customer support is there for you 24-7. Every member of their customer care team is an experienced Squarespace user working in a Squarespace office. So no matter how technical your problem, or even if you think it is a silly, trivial question, don't hesitate to ask them. They're going to have the answer. They want you to be successful. So... You, too, can set your website apart. And to do that, you can start your free trial today at squarespace.com. Enter offer code HISTORY to get 10% off your first purchase. Again, that is squarespace.com, offer code HISTORY to get 10% off and make the beautiful website you deserve and have always wanted. While all of this amazing stuff was going on, it was incredibly exciting to Europe, but especially to France, since a lot of the uh, the big steps were happening there. And soon, balloon-themed items were popping up everywhere. There were balloon motifs on almost everything that you could imagine, including clothing. I would totally go for a t-shirt with that first animal crew of balloon passengers. <laughs> I would, too. Everything from embroidered motifs to hats designed to look like balloons became really trendy and fashionable. The hairstyles that women started wearing, especially if they were fans of ballooning, were sometimes styled into these bulbous shapes to look like balloons. 
People were, in short, going sort of bananas with balloon fashion, to the point that a satirical cartoon entitled L'Homme au Ballon ou La Folie du Jour, that's uh, the man of balloons or the folly of the day, was published. And this illustration features a gentleman wearing basically balloon everything. <laughs> uh, his shirt and pantaloons are drawn to mimic the shape of balloons, and his coat is adorned with both balloon cuffs and balloon buttons, and his epaulets and shoe buckles and hair adornments are all balloons, and in lieu of a cockade, a mini balloon sits as a decorative element on his hat. And while all of this fascination with balloon fashion started in France, it quickly started to spread to London and to New York over the course of 1783 and 1784. But, of course, fashion is pretty fickle. The more outlandish the trend, often the shorter its lifespan. So by the time balloon everything had become popular with the middle class, the trendsetters who had initially adopted it were done with balloons. (laughs) Balloons over. Next. Moving on to ships. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, it's sort of fabulous. There's a, if you, there was actually a hat called a Montgolfier hat, which was inspired by ballooning, it has kind of a big poofy crown on it. You're into it. Uh, but going back to the Montgolfier specifically, the issues that they were encountering in their balloon development efforts, particularly the flight control, eventually led the brothers away from ballooning. They kind of felt like they had done as much as they could do. But their careers in science and invention did not end there. Alongside balloon development, the Montgolfier had also been working on parachute ideas, which sounds like a good companion to ballooning. uh, Joseph eventually designed one that consisted of a dozen fabric panels stitched together and attached to a basket, which was cushioned with inflatable pig bladders. They tested... This parachute by dropping a sheep from, uh, from a tower in it, maybe not the most humane. Like, no. like they were, I mean, already I'm a little both charmed, had- both charmed and ups- upset by sending animals up in the balloon, but I'm, <laughs> I'm more upset by throwing a sheep off a, to- a tower. I actually was too when I was researching this, and I, I did not. Uh, see anything definitive about how the sheep fared in all of that. But in their minds, since they had already established that sheep were similar enough to humans to make a, a broad sort of comparison in terms of safety, I guess that was the most plausible here. I think when, uh, when we're done recording, I'm going to just make a little comparison chart of sheep and human. To <laughs> figure out how exactly are we that similar. But after they stepped away from ballooning, uh, Etienne went back to the family business. As you recall, he was the one that really had a head for business and was quite good at it. And he made strides in the paper industry when he invented a vellum production process. He was also recognized as a leader in the field of paper production, and he was given the title Manufacture Royale, uh, which basically meant he was at the top of his field. And perhaps his greatest achievement, though, in this period of his life was keeping that business running successfully throughout the turmoil of the revolution and the economic tumult that gripped France in the wake of the power shift. He also got involved in community and government and eventually became the paymaster of the French War Department. He was serving in that position at the Lyon office when he became ill and decided to travel home to Annonay. And en route, he got so ill that he decided to stop, and he actually died on August 2nd, 1799. Yeah, he was near Sorrier at the time. 
Uh, and as for Joseph, he went on to invent a liquid distilling apparatus that could function at reduced pressure and temperature compared to others. Uh, and he also invented an application of that device that could be used to dry fruits. And he also invented a hydraulic ram that was used for raising water. So he really was doing a lot of interesting things. And for those accomplishments, he was made a member of France's Legion of Honor, and he was appointed to the Institute of France. And he basically worked constantly as both an inventor and a lecturer until 1809, when he retired due to failing health. In June of 1810, he traveled to uh, Balleruc-les-Bains in the hopes that the curative waters there would improve his condition. But in fact, he died there on June 26th. And the paper company that was in the Montgolfier family is actually still in business, although after changing names to Casson and Montgolfier, and now it is just Casson. Yeah, I kind of love that it's still going on. Uh, I read a thing but didn't verify it, so don't take this as fact, uh, that it is in the midst of possibly being purchased. So by the end of this year, it might be owned by a different company, and I don't know if it will change names. But right now, it is Cancel Paper, and it still exists and has been around since the early 1700s. I was going to say Unilever, because it seems like every consumer product we talk about ultimately <laughs> ends up owned. No, it's an Italian company that okay. I think is... Is allegedly buying them. They they primarily focus on making art papers. It's not like a business paper manufacturer. Nice. So it's a little bit different kind of business. Not quite, not quite what you might think of when you think a business that's being bought by another big business. It's a little different. Right. <laughs> a little right. Different. And plus, uh, if so you like, is- if you like art supplies, then then yes. Nice. Who doesn't like art supplies? I do, even though I'm bad at art. Nobody is automatically. Very few people are automatically really good at art. <laughs> I, I know a lot of artists. Uh, we actually did an interview for House of Works. This will be my art proselytizing moment that I think everybody should try it. Uh, we did an interview with Brian Stelfreeze, who is a well-known comic book artist and uh, has been working on uh, the Black Panther comic. And one of the things that came up in our interview when I asked if he just ever has that moment of like, man, I'm super good at this. And he said, you know what? I don't have natural talent. He has a brother that is very, very talented. And he said, mine is just years and years of practice and skill and learning that masquerades as talent to people that do not know that I've put in all that time. But he's kind of like the tale of if you love something and you really work at it, you can just become skilled at it. Here is what happens to me at art supply stores. (laughs) I buy beautiful paper and pens. I bring them home. And then they go in a drawer. Uh, You are are an artful consumer. I kind of am. (laughs) Do you also have some listener mail? I do, and it's really cool, and you haven't seen it yet. So here we go. It is from our listener, Erica. It is awesome. Uh, she says, Dear Tracy and Holly, and she wrote it in a beautiful little fox card. Uh, I was catching up on podcasts and was thrilled to hear your mention of nowbending in your History of Knitting episode. I am a nowbender and also teach it to my students along with knitting at the college that I work at. I learned nowbending at a folk art school in Iowa, and the teacher told us a lot about Norwegian history of the craft. Now bend items, uh, when felted, are very warm and virtually waterproof. Fishermen would wear now bend stockings to keep warm and dry, for example. Another neat thing about now bending is that if you cut or tear it, it won't unravel, which is very different from knitted or crocheted items. I wanted you both to be able to see and feel now bending, so I made two phone cozies, or whatever you want them to be. One is not felted so that you can see the herringbone stitches, and one is is felted so that you can see what a more finished piece looks like. I hope you enjoy them. Now bending is also... 
<laughs> I'm laughing because Tracy's freaking out. <laughs> Malvending is a fun and flexible craft, so I enjoy spreading the word. Thank you for the great podcast. My students will be listening to the knitting one. Oh, my goodness. So these are really cool. I'm actually going to use mine as a glasses case because it's perfect size for that as well. And my phone yeah. is kind of chunky. They're Listeners so can't beautiful. Listeners can't they see will because I'll put pictures face. up. I feel like I should take a picture of it, but I don't think you would like that at the moment. Yeah. It is a warm day in Boston. I look tired and excited. <laughs> uh, it is so cool. These are absolutely beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. It's one of those things that as I was opening the partial, I was like, what is, what is, what is this? What is this? This is amazing. Uh, and then I read the card and it got even better. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, these are so cool. I, and I'm, I'm actually borderline speechless, which everybody knows is rare and freaky deaky. Uh, thank you so much, Erica. I will put a picture of those up on our social. They are amazing. Like I said, mine is getting due to use. I'm going to use it as a glasses case. So we'll pick one of each. That's uh, awesome. We'll decide if we want the felted one or the non-felted one. And Tracy and I will duke it out. Not really. We just chat and agree. We can work <laughs> it out when we see each other for our upcoming live shows, which may yeah. have already happened by the time this episode comes out. Because that's soon. It is soon. There's a lot of stuff going on. Uh, if you would like to write to us, you can do so at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We are also on virtually every social network available uh, as Missed in History. So that includes Twitter as Missed in History, Pinterest, Facebook, Instagram, Tumblr. We're just everywhere is Missed in History. Look for that and you will find us. If you would like to learn a little bit more about what we talked about today, go to our parent site, How Stuff Works. Type in hot air balloon in the search bar. You'll get an article about how hot air balloons work. It does mention the Montgolfiers a little bit. Uh, if you would like to visit us, come to MissedInHistory.com. Look at all of the previous episodes the show has ever, ever aired, going all the way back to the beginning when they were very short. And there have been many hosts through the years that you can enjoy. We also have uh, show notes for all of the podcasts episodes that Tracy and I have worked on as well as occasional other blog posts and notes. So we hope you come and visit us at mistinhistory.com and howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 